The following message is from God's Word, taught during a time of corporate worship at Bridge Baptist Church. If you would like more information, feel free to contact us or look us up on the web at www.bridgebaptistchurch.com. We want to thank you for joining us during this time of study from God's Word. Take a moment in prayer now and ask God to open your mind and prepare your heart to hear His Word. If you would, open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We began two weeks ago looking at the issue of spiritual warfare, the nature of Satan, the the reality of temptation. And uh, we saw two weeks ago that Satan will try and get you to doubt God's word, get you to not believe what it is that God is saying to you. So what about those who will believe? What about those who must have faith? Does Satan just throw up his hands in despair and say, oh, well, they're going to have faith. I guess it's a lost cause. I'm just not going to worry about it. You know, they're they're in, they got faith in Jesus, so I'm not going to try and touch them. No, actually, that's not the case at all. If he can't get you to not have faith, what we're going to see this week is he will try to get you to, he will try to twist your faith. So let's look here, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Then Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and we're ministering to him. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we love you, and we thank you so much for withstanding the temptation that Satan threw at you. And God, we just uh, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes, give our minds the ability to grasp and perceive and understand exactly how you approached it, what your response was. Father, I just pray you would drive it home to us this morning that we can resist the temptation of the evil one if we'll follow your example. God, show us how to do it, and then give us the courage and the strength to do it, Lord. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Our story begins in a time long, long ago, in a place far, far away. There was an old, old man, ridiculously old man, He was told that he and his wife were well beyond the age in which it would be normal to expect them to be able to conceive and bear children. They were childless, and this broke this poor old man's heart. The one thing that he desperately wanted, him and his wife both, was to have an heir, to have a child, someone that they could give their things to. Well, one day God visited this poor old man, and he gave him a promise. He said, I'm going to give you a son. And not only am I going to give you a son, but with this son, I'm going to give you this promise. Your son shall have sons, and from your son, nations will come, kings will be born, 
the world will be impacted. So the old man believed him, and his heart overflowed with joy and worship for the amazing promise that God gave him. But our story takes an interesting twist. True to his word, God gave this poor old man a son, and this young man, this young boy, grew up. And there came a day in which God came to the old man and said, Okay, now I want you to take your son, your only son, the one that I gave you along with a promise. And I want you to take that boy and I want you to sacrifice him to me. The Old Testament form of worship was basically you sacrifice, that is you took something that you could utilize for various other purposes and you would kill it or slaughter it or burn it or somehow destroy it in such a way that it was given over to God. So what God was asking this poor old man to do was to take his son, his only son, the son that he'd longed for for so long, the son that he'd given him with a promise, and to take this son and to sacrifice him. So the poor old man saddled up his donkeys, his camel, not sure what, and they rode, and they came to a mountain. The name of that mountain was Mount Moriah. And they went up to the top of this mountain, and the poor old man put his son, his only son, the son that came with a promise, on a bundle of wood to sacrifice him and then to burn him as an offering to God. And as he raised the knife high, God called out and said, Stop. For now I see that you really do have faith in me, that you really do trust in me. And don't, don't kill your son. And the old man looked, and there was another ram just a little ways off, caught in a thicket, and he offered up that instead. Now this place, this Mount Moriah, is interesting. You see it turn up time and time again. A little further on down the road and a little longer on down history, there was another man, a great, great king. And this was a king that had his heart totally set on God, was completely devoted to God. But one day he did something inexplicable. Though he trusted in God, though he believed in God, for some strange reason, he thought that his safety and his security resided in the size and the strength of his army and not in the God who had promised to protect him. And so he determined to number the army, something that was forbidden by God, and he counted the people to see how many he had and how strong and how, how great his army was. This infuriated God, this betrayal and so he plagued the people with a disease. And as the disease went rampant throughout the entire nation and people started to die, the great king said, God, don't hurt these people. They weren't the ones that did this. I did this. Kill me instead. And as he was praying this prayer, this great king looked up and he saw the Lord standing over a mountain just outside that city. That mountain was Mount Moriah. And he determined that he was going to go and sacrifice to the Lord to ask his forgiveness. So, saddled up, the whole royal caravan, they go up to the top of this mountain. Jehovah is standing over a threshing floor belonging to a Gentile named Ornan. And he says, I need a sacrifice here at this threshing floor. So Ornan sold him the threshing sleds, sleds and the oxen that he used to beat out the chaff from the wheat there at the threshing floor. And the great king sacrificed there on Mount Moriah, the same place where hundreds of years before the old man had sacrificed. Well, years later, after the great king had passed away, he had, he had a son, a wise king, who became king over Israel. And he determined that at this place, the threshing floor of Ornan, where the old man had sacrificed years before, 
where he had watched his father sacrifice and ask for forgiveness, he determined that here at this place, he was going to build some, a, a temple, a place where people could come and they could worship God. And so he built this temple. And all throughout the centuries, all of God's people came to this place and they sacrificed and they worshiped and they prayed and they hoped and they trusted and they believed that God was there to deliver them and to be with them. It's this place that John the Baptist alludes to in Matthew chapter 3 when he says, One is coming after me who is greater than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to untie. And he says, He will clear his threshing floor. He's alluding to this place. As long as there have been people that have worshipped God, there have been promises made to those people about God that He would one day deliver them, that He would one day save them, that He would put away their sins. From Genesis 3 all the way to Malachi 3, all throughout the Old Testament, we have over and over and over again these promises made that the, there is one coming who will deliver you, who will save you from your sins. This one will be the faithful one. He will not be guilty of the same iniquities or the same sins that all of you guys are guilty of. He'll be pure. He'll be holy. And so here in Matthew chapter 4, we encounter the faithful one being brought to the place of faith. We encounter Jesus being brought to the temple where all of God's people have come to worship across all the centuries. We find the truest of worshipers. He comes here to the place of faith and the question now is, what kind of faith will we find? from the faithful one at the place of faith. So let's take a look here. Satan takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple. It's a drop. Scholars speculate that the corner of the temple that they're at is the side of it on the side of the Kidron Valley, which is a valley far below. So the, the height here could be anywhere from 400 to 500 feet. It's a pretty good drop. They, they go up there, Satan showing him the temple, the place where throughout all the centuries... People have trusted in God, they've hoped in God, they've believed in what God has said. And he says to him, okay, Jesus, you're God's son. Go ahead and jump. Look what he says here, verse 6. Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, Satan is quoting there from a passage from Psalm 91. A lot of people say, oh, he's taking it out of context. He's twisting it. He's making it say things that it doesn't say. It's not true. If you read Psalm 91 and you had no other scripture to read, you had no other Bible, all you had from the Bible was this one passage, Psalm 91. You go and you read it. If you had no other understanding, no other scriptures to consult, then it doesn't appear as though Satan is really twisting this thing out of context. He's quoting it exactly. And what he's saying to Jesus is, you're the man of faith, you're at the place of faith, you're at the place where people have come throughout the centuries to worship God, you say you trust God, you say you believe in God, okay, let's put it to the test. Let's see your faith in action. You think God's on your side, okay, jump. After all, God has spoken to this issue. Remember, two weeks ago we looked in... Satan said, why don't you just turn these rocks into bread? And Jesus said, no, it's written. You don't live by bread alone, but by on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here, Satan says, oh, okay, you like scripture. You want to go with the Bible? Fine. Okay, you're going to have faith. Okay, let's talk about that faith. You believe God is going to save you. So jump. 
Now, Psalm 91 is a psalm addressed to people who are under persecution. These are people who have trusted in God. And the psalm absolutely does promise deliverance. The psalm promises protection and safety and ultimately deliverance from anybody that hides themselves in the shadows of the Almighty. So Satan takes this and he's not twisting it. He's not playing fast and, you know, loose and fast with the scripture. He's like, here's what it says. It says he will instruct his angels concerning you. And if you really believe it, if you really take God at his word, there's no real reason why you can't just throw yourself here off this towering pinnacle, a height of about 400 to 500 feet. There's no reason, if you really believe in God, why you should fear the certain death that lands below. After all, he says, his angels will catch you. That's what it says right here. He will command his angels. And they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Well, I don't know about you, but 400 foot drop, that's quite a strike. I mean, here in this passage, it seems to be referencing the fact that you won't even really stub your little toe. You won't even, you know, nick your foot. I mean, surely if he's going to keep you from nicking your foot, you could survive a 500 foot splat, right? Like, Makes sense, right? But on another level, just think about it. This is where people through hundreds of years, I mean, this is the spot where they have come crying out to God for deliverance. This is where they've sacrificed. This is where they've worshipped. This is where an old man was prepared to kill his own son as an act of loyalty and commitment to God. This is where a great king sacrificed oxen as a means of asking God for forgiveness. This is where a wise king said, we need a place where we can go for all time to worship God. He's at the place of faith. And what kind of a faith are we going to find? Now, I want you guys to stop here for a second. We all know Satan is a deceiver. We know that he's wicked. We know he's crooked. Pay attention to this. He's not saying to Jesus, don't trust God. He's saying to Jesus, trust God. Now that's an interesting strategy. Is it not? Just file that away. One of the tactics that your enemy will use on its surface doesn't appear that devious. Doesn't appear that bad. Trust God. Sounds like something you'd hear me say. Sounds like something you'd hear any one of a number of good guys say. Just trust God. Now look at what Jesus says. Look at his response. He says, verse 7, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, look at Jesus' handling of the scripture. Just Pay attention to this. Notice the first phrase there. Verse 7, he says to him, again. In other words, yes, what you're quoting is accurate. What you're saying, I mean, he doesn't say, oh, whoa, wait a second, you, you misunderstand the passage. Let's go back and look at it in context. Jesus doesn't say anything like that. There's no dispute about what Satan is quoting. What he says is, yes, in addition to what you've just said, again, something else has also been said. Jesus handling the scriptures, he doesn't just look at isolated segments. He doesn't just look at Psalm 91. He looks at Psalm 91 in conjunction with the rest of the book. Here, this particular passage, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16. Now, don't flip there. I'll just give you the quick, the quick recap, a quick highlight. Moses is preaching to the Israelite nation. They're getting ready to cross over into the promised land. 
Now, this is the wilderness generation that he's talking to. This is the people who have been wandering around for 40 years in the wilderness. They basically come out of Egypt. They see all kinds of crazy, awesome things. God parts the Red Sea. They walk across on, gray, on dry ground. He closes the Red Sea in. He wipes the Egyptian nation off the map. They saw all kinds of crazy stuff happening in the land of Egypt. They saw all kinds of plagues, miraculous salvation. They come across. He says, I'm going to lead you to the promised land. They're cruising along. They're like, yeah, we're going to go to the promised land. It's going to be great. They get a little thirsty, run out of water. They start to grumble. They say, you know, we're thirsty. Now remember, they just saw all this amazing things happen. They say, I, you know, I, I don't know that God's really with us. Uh, you know, uh, uh, we're thirsty. There's no water. He's not with us. Yeah, he's not, he's not with us. Now that's ridiculous because they just saw him do all these amazing things. What they're really doing and what, what Moses is saying here in his sermon, the passage that Jesus is quoting. So Moses is preaching the sermon. He's like, remember that time a couple of years back when you guys all all grumbling about God and how he wasn't with you? Just don't, don't do that anymore, okay? And Moses' statement here is when you were doing that, what you were really doing is you were putting God to the test. The truth is what the Israelites were doing, they come out of Egypt, they see miraculous deliverance, miraculous salvation. They're thirsty. So rather than getting down on their knees and humbly praying and saying, God, we could use some water. We just saw you part the Red Ocean. We just saw you kill the firstborn. We just saw plagues and darkness and supernatural, and we know you can do whatever you want to do, that you're almighty God. Would you please, Lord, give us some water to drink? Rather than doing that, they said, you know, we can manipulate this guy. You know, they kind of whisper to each other, hey, I'm thirsty, are you thirsty? Yeah, I'm thirsty. Let's manipulate God into giving us some water. I don't think God can help us. I don't think God can give us any water. You know, if he really want, if he really cared about us, maybe he'd give us some water. They're talking in such a way that they hope God will kind of like overhear it and be like, oh, they don't know that I love them. I got I to gotta step in here. I got to prove myself to these people. I got to show them that I love them. I got I to gotta give them water and, and make miraculous things happen. So then rather than just going to God and straight up, like real ordinary people and asking, Lord, will you provide for us? Rather than doing that, they're trying to play manipulative games. Well, most of you guys are aware, we're probably losing this building at the end of this year if everything goes according to plan. They're going to, you know, wipe the building off, the, off scrape it off this, this uh, plot of land here and build five-story apartment complex. And you know what? God's in control. And we say, you know what? God can do whatever he wants. It would be comparable if we were to do what the Israelites here did. If I were to walk over and say, I really don't want to leave the building. How about you? You were to say, no, I don't want to leave it either. Okay. Well, I don't think God can save us. You know, if you really loved us, if you really cared about us, he'd do something spectacular here. He'd stop this development company from scraping this. You know, we get into these games, right? And it's like, okay, yeah, now God's got to prove himself, right? We just challenged him. You know, we, we just threw the gauntlet down. Can God really do what we just said he couldn't do? Let's, let's wait and see. Now, that's ridiculous. It absolutely is ridiculous. This coming from the generation of people that saw the miraculous. And Moses is speaking to their children, because remember, they all died off 40 years in the wilderness. God said, I'm tired of you guys always testing me. He was mad at them, because they kept testing him. So the parents died off. Generation under them rises up, and Moses is preaching to them. He says, remember what all your moms and dads did? Don't do that. Just don't. Don't put God to the test. So Satan, accurately quoting Psalm 91. Well, you love God, okay. 
God loves you. Okay. God speaks. Okay. You trust what God says. Okay. Well, God says you're not going to stub your toe. So jump. Now, thank God it's not Josh Claycamp standing at the top of that mountain, at the top of that temple. Because I'd have been like, yeah, like, you know, this is it. This is on the line. Like, all these people down below in the temple are watching me. What am I going to do here? Am I going to chicken out, you know? Like, am I not going to live up to the same expectations that Abraham lived up to, that King David lived up to, that King Solomon lived up to, that hundreds of thousands of people lived up to for centuries before me? Rather than saying, I got to prove that I trust God, or I got to prove that God loves me. Jesus' response here is, again, it is written. You're challenging me. You're trying to get me to force God's hand. You're trying to get me to prove something to you. Jesus rejects any interpretation of Scripture that ignores any other passage of Scripture. That phrase there is really important, church. Verse 7, again. See that word? Again. The Bible may say something here. And it has truth, and it has meaning, and it is absolutely legit, whatever it is saying here. But the deception is, this is the deception, that you can isolate this text from any other passage of Scripture. That you can just pull this out, and whatever this text is meaning, that is the absolute meaning of the text, and it doesn't matter whether or not what I think this passage is saying consists or is consistent with what the rest of Scripture is saying. Jesus rejects any interpretation of Scripture that is not harmonious with the totality of Scripture. Let me say that again. Jesus rejects any interpretation of Scripture that is not harmonious, doesn't, it's not consistent with the totality of the book. See, satanic faith is this. He will try to get you to divide one passage against another. And then he'll say, why don't you just have faith in this? Why don't you just trust in this? I mean, you say you trust God, trust it, right? Faith can actually be harmful. Listen to me. Faith can be harmful. Some varieties of faith will actually lead you away from the one true God. Let me say it again. Some varieties of faith will actually lead you away from the one true God. And a lot of people do this, substituting superstition, falsehood, or even faith itself in the place of truth. Oh, I believe in faith. I believe you have to have faith in faith. How many of you have ever heard that expression before? You just got to have faith. Believe in your faith. What does that even mean? Faith by nature requires an object that you trust in. I believe in faith. Well, I believe in this chair's ability to hold me up. So if I sit in this chair, I believe the chair will support my body weight. I'm trusting in the chair. I can place myself in the chair. I believe in sitting in sitting. I believe sitting in the sitting. That's kind of what you're saying when you, believe, when you say I have faith in my faith. 
And it's a cliche, it's a hackneyed expression. Once upon a time, we would say, I have faith, and I have faith in my faith. And what we would mean by that was we had faith in Jesus Christ. We believe that he could save us. We believe he could deliver us. And we would consider that placing our trust in him, in an object, in the same way you place yourself in a chair. We would then, to abbreviate that, say, I have faith, okay? And then, later on, people are like, well, I don't know about this. And we get in these discussions, and we respond. We say, well, I have faith in my faith, which is great. But now you got people running around saying, well, you just got to have faith. But they're not talking about Jesus. They're not talking about any kind of an objective, knowable, definable certitude, a truth that you can hold on to. They're just talking about abstract, kind of mystical kind of experiences. I, I believe in faith. I have faith in my faith. My father-in-law. It's like when one, when one face palm isn't enough, you have to do two. Oh, man. Just have to hit yourself twice. Having discussions with my father-in-law. He claims to be Buddhist. It's a weird form of Buddhism. It doesn't follow any of the normal tenets of Buddhism. But he claims he has faith. You get the incense going. You get the candles burning. You get some Enya music kind of playing in the background there. You sit Indian style. I asked him, because you know you sit Indian style and you kind of like do like this with your hands, right? Why do you have to do that with your hands? And they always kind of talk breathy, you know, like, oh, we're talking to God. We're having faith in our faith. You know, and just, I can't believe I'm hearing this. It makes no sense. At the end of the day, what are you really hanging your hat on? What are you really trusting in? There are two types of faith. There are satanic faith, what I'm calling it. Satanic faith. There are two extremes here. One is basically no objective truth. It's all subjective. It's all purely internal. You look inside yourself. And a classic example, present day example of this would be like New Age mysticism. There's no objectable, knowable, definitive truth. There's nothing we can prove. At the end of the day, it's just whatever makes you happy. If it makes you happy, if it makes you feel good, that's true. That's true for you, and that's wonderful. If you want to play Indian music and light up some candles and sit Indian style and do like this with your fingers, and that makes you happy, then that's true for you. On the other end of the extreme, see over here, there's no objectable, knowable truth. On the other end of the extreme, you have individuals who will say what is true, and you place your confidence in either a supreme leader or a tradition, or some sort of a dogma that's been handed down throughout the centuries. Classic example is Islam, okay? We've got to do what the Prophet Muhammad says, or we place our faith in the Qumran. And Christians, you know, you read the Qumran. There are a number of passages in the Qumran, which is the Islamic, it's their, their, their Bible, basically, it's their scripture. I'm sorry, Qumran, Koran, what am I thinking here? Whoa, my bad. Koran. <laughs> I'm thinking of the Qumran. Anyway, whatever. So anyway, they place their faith in the Koran, okay? They're placing their faith in the Koran. And there are passages within the Koran that even have passages that are very similar to what you find in the Bible. In fact, Muhammad, when he's compiling this thing, when he's putting this all together, he's got numerous little stories from the Jewish faith, from, you know, Abraham. And he even, you know, they wrap all this stuff in there. And to this day, Islamic people, they even agree that Jesus is a good prophet. He's one of many. But it all ends, it, it comes to its fulfillment in Muhammad. So they're placing all of their hope and all of their trust on Muhammad. So you've got two extremes here. One is there's no objectable, knowable truth. And then on the other side, we're going to believe what a supreme leader or a religious dogma that's been handed down for thousands of years, we're going to place all of our faith in that. Here is what distinguishes the two of them. 
from biblical truth. Biblical truth looks at objective events in history, quantifiable things that can be measured and understood, such as a guy dying on a hill outside of Jerusalem and coming back from the dead three days later and not dying again. And a whole slew of people who were so convinced of that, they no longer feared death, no longer worried about what you could do to them, and were willing to testify to the truth of what they had seen. Biblical faith, Christian faith, absolutely hinges on historical events, but it does so with a view towards the harmony and the consistency of what God has spoken in his book. Anything that divides one passage of Scripture from another passage of Scripture would be like Islam. Anything that says, forget the book in its entirety, would be like New Age mysticism. I look inside myself for truth. I pray, I alm, I do all that stuff. Whatever makes me happy. Both are wrong. Both are satanic. Both can kill you if you give in to them. There are two poles here. Satanic faith parades itself around as truth apart from the harmonious understanding of Scripture. Believing God with faith in the truth is what biblical Christianity is. In other words, we look at this thing and we say it's objective, it's defined, it's right here. God has spoken. Now, whatever he's saying here in this passage because he's God, he doesn't change his mind, nothing suddenly just occurs to him. He's not like, you know, in Genesis, well, I thought it was good to do it this way, and then here a couple of days later, oh, no, 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 I changed my mind. Sorry, that's not what I really meant. Do it like this. Whatever he has spoken in the beginning is going to be consistent with what he says in the end. Because he is eternal, he transcends time, he stands outside of time, nothing suddenly occurs to him, he doesn't suddenly have a flash of genius, oh, we should have done it this way, I'm going to change it all right here on the drop of a dime. Nothing like that in the scriptures, which means, if you really believe that, anything you read at the end is going to be consistent with what you find in the beginning. Anything you find in the beginning, if it's confusing, it doesn't make sense, it should be consistent with what you find at the end. Now, what we're saying here is that true faith does not bypass your intellect. Let me say it again. True faith does not bypass your intellect. We're talking about a truth that is objective, that is knowable, that can be measured, that can be tested against God's Word. Now, if you're here today, and I'm sure lots of you have had these experiences, you need to come check out my church. My guy, he's great. I trust everything he says. Well, do you guys open the Bible? Sometimes. Does he ever try to base what he says in the book? Sometimes. That's dangerous. It is absolutely dangerous. Everything you're saying and everything as a leader and everything that you're believing as a congregation must be grounded in Scripture because it is really easy for me to come to you, say, forget everything back here in the back half or forget everything here in the other half forget all that we're just right here matthew chapter four this morning and here's what i'm going to say to you and blah 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 there you go and you just try to belt that out there isolate this text from other texts guess what you've just done something very very dangerous you have not allowed god to speak to his own people and you have not correctly understood what he is saying so at a pastor's conference this is probably two years ago we were talking you know 
pastors talk, lots of different things. But one of the questions came up. I didn't pose the question. I was just sitting here listening to this discussion. Somebody said, well, it was a younger guy straight out of seminary. He's like, well, let me ask you guys a question. Uh, how many times do you read through the Bible in a year? And he had a bunch of older guys, you know, 40s, 50s. Don't. <laughs> older. I said older than the seminary student, okay? You guys are rough on me, man, I tell you. <laughs> Older, okay, older. You guys are spring chickens. None of the, nobody in here is old, okay? You're all young, vibrant, healthy, all right? You can all run thousands of miles and no stop. You got all kinds of energy in the world. I believe it. All right, back to the, back to the issue at hand, though. So the uh, older pastor, the, the question came up from the younger pastor, the guy straight out of seminary, to the older, as in older than the younger, not old, who was 40 to 50, you know, somewhere in their 40s to 50s. And the question was, how often do you guys read through your Bible? And I'm sitting there, and I, you know, honestly, I, I read through my Bible about twice a year, cover to cover. I'm not saying that's brag, I'm just saying I think that's a good practice as a pastor. That's something you ought to be doing. And the response was, never. And that shocked me. It really did. And so my question, my follow-up was like, well, do you read like systematic theology textbooks? For those of you not sure what that is, these are theologians who have sat down, they, they've gone through and they try to harmonize all the different truths in Scripture and try to lay it out in, in these manuals that kind of systematize all of, the, all of the stuff in Scripture, right? So if you're not reading the Bible, are you at least reading systematic theology? Are you, is there a portion of your study time that you give over to, you know, trying to make sure you understand it from cover to cover rather than just piecemeal? No? No, not really. We're just coming to it from this passage trying to get some kind of a truth out of it so that we have something we can say that's intellectual and sounds smart on Sunday morning. Wow. I seem to recall somebody doing this with Jesus up on the temple. That's not right. And as a church, you should expect more than that from your pastor. Satan comes to him and says, do you trust God? Well, here's a nice little passage. Put it to the test. And Jesus' response is, again, it is written. He's harmonizing all of Scripture, which means that truth is objective, it's knowable, and it's not inconsistent, which means that if you approach the book, you should be able to pull it all together and harmonize it. Now, I'm going to apply this thing three ways to us this morning. One, individualism. Two, sensationalism, and three, surgical extractionism. And you're like, okay, whatever. I, we'll get to that in a second. Number one, on an individual level, when you come to the book and you're reading it and you're like, God, I want you to speak to me. I want to know what you're trying to say. I want you to be humble and I want you to let this passage all by itself talk to you. I want you to soak on it. I want you to meditate on it. When you do your quiet time in the morning and you're reading the Bible, God absolutely speaks through every word, every page, every sentence, every verse has a very particular meaning. And each one, every word, we saw it two weeks ago. Man does not live by bread alone. That means it doesn't matter what you have for breakfast as much as what you had for devotion this morning. It means it doesn't matter what you're planning to eat for dinner as long as it matters what you meditated on from Scripture this morning. 
Man does not live on bread. He lives on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word is important to you. Every word has a certain, if you want, nutritional value, spiritual value that it brings into your life. That means you look at any passage here, such as what Satan has done. You come to the Psalms. You come here to Psalm 91. You read that. It's got meaning. It's got depth. It's got truth. It is speaking to you. God wants to speak to you through his word. He wants to have a personal relationship with you, and you can have it with him. Any passage here, they're all going to say something. But when you think you've arrived at an understanding of what God is saying, Bear in mind that his ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Now, he's a complicated person on some occasions. It happens. Sometimes truth is so dynamic, so amazing, it requires multiple passages to try to understand it. So when you think you've arrived at an understanding, stop for a second and say, as an individual reading this passage for the first time, Am I bringing certain things to this text that might confuse me, that might cloud my judgment, that might take away from my ability to understand what is being said here? Do I need to maybe broaden the scope, look at other passages, maybe look up some cross-references, get out of concordance? Do I need to try and consult other passages before I definitively, objectively say, that's what this is saying? Be careful as an individual. Now, I preach, and you guys hear me preach this. You can come to the Word and read it and understand it. It doesn't take any great scholarly guy. You don't need any person, really, to sit here and you know, get all into the Greek and the Hebrew and all that kind of stuff. You can read it. You can know it. You can understand it. You can have a direct personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't need anybody to sit in between you and that and Him. But at the same time, remember, you're an individual. You have certain prejudices. You got certain things in your life that you're blind to. You got things that you're not even aware of. So be careful when you approach any one passage that you understand it in light of the whole. I wrote letters to my wife Shanti when I was in the Marine Corps. Now, when I was in boot camp, they didn't really feed us very well. And I got hungry. Now, if you were to take a letter, we actually pulled out some letters couple weeks ago that I had written to her when I was in the Marine Corps, specifically when I was in boot camp. If you were to take a letter out and say, okay, this is what Josh Claycamp thinks about Shanti Claycamp, and you were to pull any one of those letters from that three-month period of time that I was in basic training, you will find in the reading of those letters, there's a consistent theme that kind of comes up. I would start off, I love you, I miss you. That would take a couple sentences. And then I would expand for multiple paragraphs, multiple pages sometimes, when the reality, I was very hungry. And that I longed for her chicken enchilada casserole. And I, I yearned for her homemade waffles. And you would think, if you only had that one letter that I wrote at a time, in which I was in boot camp and starving, that all I really cared for my wife for was the fact that she was a great cook. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. Shanti's an amazing, dynamic lady, but I, I'm being influenced by certain you know, circumstances that are leading me to say certain things. So if you didn't know all the time, I mean, I've known this girl since I was in grade six. We were high school sweethearts. I've been married to her for 10 years now. There's a lot of other history going on in this relationship besides the fact that I'm hungry when I'm away from her for three months in basic training. But if you were to just pull it out, 
Okay, here we go. I got a letter from Josh written to Shanti when he was in boot camp. This is it. This is what he thinks about her. You would think I was rather chauvinistic. That's what you would think. You would think all I really cared about for Shanti, and she is an amazing cook. Don't get me wrong. She's absolutely amazing. But you'd think that's all that mattered to me. The same is true here for the book, okay? You have to understand there is a totality here. And if you isolate one passage from another passage, you're going to miss the meaning. You're going to miss the significance of it. So don't do that. So number one, individualism. Don't isolate individual texts. You as an individual, be wary of the things you bring to the text and try to understand it in light of the whole. Number two, sensationalism. God's not with you unless you can throw yourself off the top of a 400-foot-tall building and he catches you on the way down. We're getting killed on this. We're getting killed. The church in North America is being challenged to demonstrate their faith. And they're being challenged the way Satan challenged Jesus. Your God isn't real unless I see crazy supernatural things happening at your church. I'm talking people miraculously healed, people coming back from the dead, people doing all kinds of crazy miraculous things. If I don't see any of this going on in your church congregation, well then, maybe there's a problem with your faith. And that's not any different than what Satan is saying here to Jesus. You believe in God? Jump. He'll catch you. And so the church, rather than going back to the book and saying, well, how did Jesus respond to this temptation? The church in North America largely is like, yeah, you're right. Where is our God? And then they're looking in desperation for sensationalistic, fantastic, just unbelievable, miraculous phenomenon to point at and say, this proves that our God is real. People doing crazy things, jumping up out of the grave and all this stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. God can work miracles. He has, he will, he will in the future. But to sit there and say your faith isn't real or that somehow you don't have a relationship with God, if you cannot on demand with the snap of your fingers produce some sort of crazy sensational thing just out of thin air, that's ludicrous. But we, it's like if we don't have crazy phenomena happening here in church on a Sunday morning, we don't have just craziness going on then somehow God isn't with us. I reject that. Jesus rejects that. You know how they got off the temple this day? They took the stairs. It's okay. God is so awesome, so miraculous, He gave me two legs. Yeah, they're still working. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that awesome? That God loves me so much, He blessed me with the ability to walk. Why don't we just take the stairs rather than me taking a swan dive off the 400-foot temple? There is nothing wrong with a faith that trusts completely and totally in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An evil and adulterous generation looks for sensational, miraculous, over-the-top signs. And Jesus says, the only sign I'm showing that generation is this one, the sign of Jonah. And by that, what he was referring to was after three days, I'm coming back. That's it. It's a sign. It's historical. It can be measured. It's subjective. All kinds of historians bear witness to this. The early church died for it. It seems to be legit. You got anything else you need? Besides the proof that he has come back from the dead and that he promises to bring you back from the dead. If you need something else, then what you're not trusting in is what God himself is saying. What you're trusting in is the satanic lie 
that what God himself has said is no longer sufficient. You need more. In other words, you need to test it. You need to challenge him. You need to see if God will rise to the occasion. And what Moses said was, don't ever do that ever again. The consequence of insisting upon sensational, supernatural evidences of your faith is that God says, you guys aren't coming into my promised land anymore. You tested me. You didn't trust me. You tried to force my hand. You're done. We do not need sensationalism. What we need is a simple faith in what Jesus is saying. Nothing more, nothing less. And the third thing, surgical extractionism. What are you saying? A neurosurgeon is a guy that works on your brain. In other words, you got an issue, he'll take a brain saw and he'll, he'll cut off the top, he'll perform a craniotomy and he'll cut off the top of your skull and he'll go in and if you've got like some sort, something wrong, you know, they can, they can do limited in terms of our understanding of what's really going on with the brain, but we know some things. So a neurosurgeon is a guy that works on your brain. Now I use the phrase surgical extractionism to refer to people who pull texts out of isolation to justify whatever their theological position is. In other words, what I'm saying here is in this book, in the totality of it, we have the mind of Jesus. We have everything he's saying to us. We're having everything that God wants us to know. In other words, between this little cover here and between this little cover here, we've got everything that God wants us to know. We have the mind of Christ. He himself says this, okay? So surgical extractionism is with when with all the consummate skill of a kindergarten coloring outside the lines, you approach the book like a neurosurgeon who's drunk or hungover, you chop it open, and then you just take one little piece like this, and then you kick the patient off the operating table, and you're like, okay, this is what I got right here. This is all I need. Forget the rest of Christ. Forget the rest of what he's saying. Just, I got this passage right here. This is it. Follow me. This is what it's all about. And this is endemic as well. Got this thing called the internet. And what you have on the internet is people, you know, they're not bad people necessarily, they just want to make money, right? Just trying to make a buck. And so, want to build a following, got blogs, got books that they got to sell, got merchandise, all this kind of stuff. And so what they'll do, and this is just totally out of hand, what we're finding today. I'm going to take a passage, going to rip it out, surgically extract a little fragment of the mind of Christ from the rest of his brain, get the rest of it, and now I'm going to take it and I'm going to invent a novel, new, never-before-heard-of interpretation. And I'm going to write a whole book on this amazing thing that I, after 2,000 years of church history, have discovered. And you never saw this before. But listen to me, because I know what it's all about. I've, you know, I've, forget the rest of that, I've got this verse. And they're going to write all kinds of books. And they're going to get on the internet. And they're going to go and talk to all kinds of people. And all the conferences, you know, making the rounds, you know. People are like, oh, wow, I've never heard this before. And nobody stops to think, hmm, why have I never heard this before? Nobody asks that question. We should, oh, wow, this is amazing. This is just so beautiful. I am so glad that God has given you this one little verse in isolation to the rest of the whole thing that doesn't seem to allude to this weird idea at all. And, and I'm glad that you have finally, after 2,000 years, figured it out. And thank you so much for sharing with us. 
I will buy your book. Here, $25. And I will buy your CDs. Here, another $50. And I will buy your t-shirt. Here, another $10. Do you have anything else I can buy? This is really, this is killing us, guys. It's killing us. I mean, if you love Jesus, why would you rip out one little passage and, you know, shove the rest of them aside? And then why would you think that that one little passage would be enough to get you through the day? It's killing us. And the problem is it's easily accessible. You get on the internet, all kinds of stuff out there. Why do you think they're pocking that stuff? They want to make money. You don't need them. And I would caution you against buying anything they're selling. Again, you can read what other people say about a little chunk of Christ's mind that they've surgically extracted, or you can just come to Jesus. Where would you go? Where do you want to go? And who do you want to follow? Somebody with a new novel understanding of the book or the Lord himself? Now, some of us in this room get caught up in that. I just, I beg you, please. It's dangerous and it can hurt. And you buy into it and then you tell your friend about it. And then they buy into it. And the next thing you know, you've got people whose, heart, whose lives are, are broken and they're hurting. There's just an example that happened to me a couple of years back. And comes to me and says, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. You know, normally you have to engage in some sort of apologetics. You have to prove why Jesus is real. You have to go through all these kind of scholarly, intellectual hoops, right? He knocks. I answer, I want to believe in Jesus. Awesome. Let's do this. I don't even have to like get all technical. You're ready to embrace Christ in your life. Let's pray. So we pray. God, forgive me of my sins. He prays the prayer. Say amen. I look at him. He looks at me. He starts to weep. Not the, not the reaction I was expecting. I said, what's wrong? I said, I can't speak in tongues. I said, well, so what? I said, well, I've been told, and I believe it, that if you don't speak in tongues, you can't possibly save. You're not going to heaven. You know, Romans 10, 9 says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And I understand the whole speaking in tongues phenomenon, but nowhere ever, anywhere in the Bible does it ever say that in order to be saved, you have to speak in tongues. And yet this man had come to the realization that he did not have the Spirit in his life, he was not going to heaven unless he could speak in tongues. So he was never able to mature in his walk with Christ until he met me. And then I was like, that's garbage. Throw that out. You don't need tongues. You need the book. That's all that you need. And I want you guys to know, here at Bridge Baptist Church, we're going to pursue the truth in its totality from cover to cover. And we'll never let go. And we'll never back away. And if some things don't seem to add up, we will stop and we will look and we will try to make sense of it. Because faith is not illogical. It is not just pie-in-the-sky crazy things. We serve a God who makes perfect sense if you will listen to him. And we cannot as a church, we cannot as a church, 
hold this idea here in this hand that doesn't make sense with this idea over here in this hand. And just say, well, it doesn't make any sense, but I, I think it's, there you go, that's what it is. Our God doesn't work that way. Okay? They have to go together. They have to harmonize. It has to, to go together. Some of you may have heard of a man named Oliver Buswell. Some of you may not. Oliver uh, was a president of Cornwell Theological Seminary. That's what he's widely known for. He wrote lots of books. Was faithful to the scriptures. Most people don't know about him was that he served in World War II. Ah, World War I. He was a chaplain with the 140th Infantry Division from the Expeditionary Unit in the United States, fighting in France during World War I. Took part in the Meuse-Argonne. Wrote a letter home to mom and dad two days before what at that time was the greatest military offensive, the greatest military action in the history of the world. Massive undertaking. Thousands of men, thousands of artillery pieces. Two days before they launched this assault, Oliver writes home to his mom and dad. He says, I, I'm writing just before what will probably be the greatest military activity the world has ever seen. There are lots of interesting things that I could tell you, but I'll tell you all about it when I get home. One thing that's very significant to me, and it is an order that's scattered everywhere, so that every private and every orderly knows it and everybody understands it. It's an order that anyone who at any time orders any kind of a retreat, that man is to be shot down at once by his officer. If no officer hears it, the enlisted men around him must take the offender who has ordered the retreat to the nearest officer so that he can be shot on the spot. We're going forward. And no orders to retreat could ever possibly be official. Germany has repeatedly sent men into the Allied ranks perfectly disguised as Allied soldiers, perfectly disguised as Allied officers, dressed to fit the spot, speaking English or French perfectly, all for the purposes of ordering a retreat, just as the devil sends the same kind of people into the church today ordering a retreat among our brothers and sisters. The only way to overcome is to have understood that God never wants us to retreat. When it comes to knowing Him, when it comes to learning about Him, don't ever content yourself with just this one chapter. I'm going to memorize Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to master it, and then that's it. I'm good. I got Matthew 4. That's all I need to know. That's a retreat from knowing God in his entirety. That's walking away from knowing Jesus for all that he is. That's surgical extractionism. That's mutilated neurosurgical butchery. Just pulling a piece of the brain out, forgetting the rest. To master one portion of the scriptures without attempting to learn and submit to all of it is really to appreciate none of it. And that's what Satan does. If you ever feel like you just, this is it, I've got it, I've got it all figured out, I don't need to read, I don't need to study, I don't need to learn all of it. 
You've bought into the lie of the enemy. And here at Bridge Baptist Church, there will be no retreat. And anybody who signals a retreat is an enemy. If we love him, we want to learn everything there is to know about him. Let's pray. God, we do love you. We do worship you. We are easily confused. We are always tempted to buy into these little fragments here, those little fragments there that the enemy pulls out for the very purpose of confusing us and disorienting us and getting us to stop in our walk. God, help us to see the enemy's strategy the way your son saw it for what it was. Help us to go after all of your word, the grand totality of it from cover to cover. Help us to know you, all that you are. God, keep us from a satanic faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. We hope that you've been challenged and encouraged by God during our time together in the scriptures. While it is our purpose to provide sound biblical teaching to all who are interested, our prayer is that you would be involved in a local church of your own, because true spiritual growth cannot occur apart from the fellowship of the church. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next time at Bridge Baptist Church.